0: All right, welcome back to HealthSpan. This is Michael. This is part three of How Not to Diet Weight Loss Boosters section by Dr. Michael Greger. In this episode, I will be discussing the importance of getting thylakoids in your diet, hibiscus tea, the importance of brown adipose tissue and how to activate it, how to create healthy habits, the importance of staying hydrated with water, and ways to reduce your weight and inflammation. Now, before I begin, If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to please leave a review, and I'll go ahead and leave my Instagram in the episode description if you want to leave me any comments or suggestions. So we're going to begin the discussion with thylakoids. Now, you may be unfamiliar with what thylakoids are, and what they are are microscopic cyclic structures composed of chlorophyll-rich membranes, which are concentrated in the leaves of plants. And thylakoids are where photosynthesis takes place. And what happens when we eat things like leafy greens is we get the thylakoid membranes which are able to resist our digestive enzymes. And what happens is they can actually last for hours in our intestines before being broken down. And in the intestines is where these thylakoids work their magic. Now, what they do is these thylakoid membranes will bind to the enzyme called lipase. Now, lipase is a digestive enzyme that helps us digest fat specifically. So eventually what happens is because lipase is being blocked by the thylakoids, it's it's preventing us from uh, absorbing fat. And this is sort of like the drug Orlistat. It's a similar mechanism. It's gonna bind to and inhibit the enzyme lipase, preventing fat absorption. Now, eventually what happens is the fat absorption is not so much blocked by the thylakoids as it, as it is Delayed. Now, what happens is because the fat cannot be absorbed, we get the fat reaching farther down into our intestines. And by delaying caloric absorption until the tail end of our small intestine, we get strong satiety signals that are sent up to our brains, which essentially say you are full from stem to stern, thus dialing down your appetite. So, there's something he talks about which is called This ileal break effect, and this is something I just kind of mentioned already, where because you're absorbing nutrients later in your digestive tract, you're sending signals to your brain that are signaling that you're actually full. So these signals specifically are called CCK. And I've talked about CCK before in Jason Fung's book, in Sachin Panda's book. And CCK is this hormone that is a signal for satiety. And this will increase when we get uh, absorption of these fats later in our digestive tract. And a a hormone that will actually decrease is ghrelin. And ghrelin is our hunger hormone. So we're decreasing our hunger hormone and increasing our satiety hormone. And this is all done by the thylakoids that are binding to lipase, preventing the absorption of fat, and causing us to absorb it later in our digestive tract. Now, in an experiment... Spinach extracts were disguised in jam and juice to, to sneak thylakoids into membrane in, into meals, and those unwittingly e- eating the equivalent of about half of of, a of cup of cooked spinach felt significantly less hungry and more satiated over the next few hours. So something else that happened is that their cravings for sweets, salts and fatty snacks also decreased. Now, researchers in Sweden randomized overweight women in to, to blended blueberry drinks every morning with or without powdered spinach. And within 12 weeks, the woman who had been slipped the spinach lost three more pounds than the control group. And the spinach group's cravings for sweets diminished. And as a bonus, their bad LDL cholesterol dropped. So their weight dropped, the cravings dropped, and the LDL cholesterol dropped. All from adding spinach into their diet. Now there's a general rule that the greener your vegetable or spinach is, the more thylakoid it has in it. So long story short, I'm telling you the importance of getting spinach and thylakoids into your diet to make you more satiated, to make you eat less, to make you lose weight. Now I'm going to move on to hibiscus tea. Hibiscus tea, which is also known as roselle or Jamaica is enjoyed around the world, hot or cold for its bright red color, and tart cranberry-like flavor. And in Mexico, hibiscus tea has been used traditionally for the treatment of obesity, sparking lots of research interest. And computer modeling studies have actually suggested that certain hibiscus compounds might bind to the fat-digesting enzyme lipase like a key in a lock. So similar mechanism to Orlistat, the drug, similar mechanism to thalicoids, hibiscus tea can bind to this lipase enzyme like a key in a lock. And again, why is this important? Well, all those uh, things I described in the thylakoid section, similar in hibiscus tea. So to, to design a randomized double blind trial, instead of trying to create an artificially colored and flavored placebo tea, the researchers, what they did was they dried the hibiscus tea into a powder and put it into a capsule. And after 12 weeks, there was a greater reduction In waistlines and body fat percentages in the hibiscus group compared to those who got placebo capsules. So decrease in waistline, decrease in body fat percentage just from adding hibiscus tea into their diets. So maybe that's something you can add into your diet as well. So moving on to the next section, I will be discussing brown adipose tissue or BAT. Now generally speaking, there's sort of two different types of fat. There's your white adipose tissue, which is located viscerally around your organs, you know, the ones that are inflammatory. There's white adipose tissue underneath your skin and all across your body. And then there's brown adipose tissue. Now, brown adipose tissue is, we have a lot less of it, and it's really only located in our shoulders, our neck, uh, and a few other regions, but it is actually really good for us, unlike white adipose tissue. And the role of brown adipose tissue is to consume fat calories by generating heat in response to cold exposure. Now, interestingly, the more brown adipose tissue you have and the more active it is, the thinner you tend to be. Those who have active brown adipose tissue have less than half the visceral belly fat. Now, there is a reason to believe that brown brown fat does play a causal role in regulating our weights, and we can use... Uh, a certain tumor as an example so there is a tumor called hi- a hibernoma which is a rare benign tumor of brown fat and it's named because it resembles the hibernating gland of animals like bears who utilize this brown fat to keep them warm throughout the winters and this condition a hibernoma allows us the opportunity to see if growing extra brown fat can cause weight loss and indeed people with hibernomas can lose as much as 35 pounds, but then they actually regain it right back after surgical removal of the tumor. So this is kind of demonstrating that this brown adipose tissue tumor, which is essentially you have too much of it, uh, it's causing you to lose weight. But as soon as you get that hibernoma removed, you gain that weight right back. And brown fat transplantation studies showing studies showing you can reverse obesity in lab animals, have even led scientists to suggest that perhaps we should start harvesting brown fat cells from cadavers. I mean, this is is a huge uh, landmark observation of brown adipose tissue. This might be the key to helping people lose weight. Now, how exactly can you activate your own brown adipose tissue? Well, brown fat can be activated rapidly by exposure to cold. So taking a cold shower, doing a cold plunge, this will help activate your brown adipose tissue. And what happens is if you focus an infrared thermography camera on someone's upper chest as they stick their hand into a bowl of ice water, you can see areas above their collarbone light up within minutes, which is indicating the presence of brown adipose tissue. So we use this infrared camera showing that when we expose ourselves to cold, we get activation of brown adipose tissue. This is how we know that exposure to cold activates brown adipose tissue. And another fun fact is that we can actually turn white fat into brown fat with cold exposure. So unless a a cell is a stem cell or an undifferentiated cell, once cells become specialized, they tend to stay that way. But fat cells act differently. Fat cells can actually turn into other cells. So you can go from fat storing to fat burning. And apparently, when we're exposed to cold, not only do we make new brown cells from scratch, but some of our white fat cells also transform into brown fat cells, which is offering us a dual benefit and the fat around our our middles uh our midsection can become speckled with brown fat cells to start burning off the fat of their neighboring cells as well and one of the reasons brown well the main reason brown fat is brown is because it is packed with mitochondria, and we know the importance of having uh, healthy, uh, abundant amount of mitochondria to give us energy. Now, what are some foods that can turn on brown adipose tissue? I mentioned we can do a cold plunge, but what are some stuff we can eat? And in ironic to contrast to cold, one of the first foods to pass the test was hot peppers. In hot peppers, there's a, there's a certain substance compound called caspacin this is the pungent compound in chili peppers that gives them their heat and this fits like a lock and key into the thermoreceptors that lead to the activation of the brown fat and remember how i mentioned you can point a thermography camera at someone and see the area above their collarbones light up when they plunge into their when they plunge their hand into the ice cold water the same thing happens if you skip the ice and just feed people chili pepper extract so we still get that light up on the camera and an activation of the brown adipose tissue when you feed people chili peppers. And the reason we know this metabolic boost is from the ignition of brown fat is because caspasin like compounds only really seem to work in people with active brown adipose tissue deposits. Now remember, you may have brown adipose tissue, but it may not be active. So we see this light up in ignition of brown fat When people have brown adipose tissue, we see this metabolic boost. And in a meta-analysis of studies on caspacin, whether in extract or pepper form, found that overweight individuals burned on average about an extra 70 calories a day compared to those in the control group. At the same time, taking caspacin-like compounds before a meal may actually decrease a caloric intake. So essentially what's happening is you're helping from both sides of the energy balance equation, energy in and energy out. Now, besides caspasin, as it turns out, there are a variety of structures similar uh, that can go activate of this brown adipose tissue. Now, the first one is ginger, which has been used in China and India to treat diseases for thousands of years. And when, in a study, when they hit ginger inside capsules, A half teaspoon's worth of powdered ginger can increase the rate at which our bodies burn fat by about 10% two hours after consumption compared to the placebo group. And this actually only seemed to work in the morning though. And besides ginger, another compound that does this is cinnamon. Cinnamon is another spice with some heat that can cause browning of white fat cells in a petri dish and the slimming of mice in labs. And in an experiment, In a group of type 2 diabetics, just about a third of a teaspoon a day for 12 weeks caused 4 pounds of weight loss over placebo. And as a bonus, their blood sugar control and cholesterol also improved. So cinnamon, another way we can activate brown adipose tissue and get that reversal from white fat into brown fat. Now he also mentioned peppermint as well as another way to do this. And... One of the things I want to talk about as well is tea, having a nice cup of tea. Although more than 2,000 compounds have been identified in tea leaves, a lot of the attention has been on this molecule of antioxidants, or this family of of antioxidants called uh, catechins, for example, EGCG. And this is because... Even straight EGCG has been shown to boost metabolism and the rate at which fat is burned at rest. And that is one of the reasons most of the spotlight has been on green, white, and oolong tea, as they have about 5 times more EGCG than black tea. And like cold and caspasin, tea only actually boosted metabolism in those with active brown adipose tissue deposits. And furthermore, could recruit the formation and activation of additional brown fat over time. So, we see this compound EGCG in teas, specifically the green, white, and oolong teas, that help boost our metabolism and activate more brown adipose, adipose tissue. So, in summary, we know we can activate brown adipose tissue in many ways, for example, tea, cinnamon, peppermint. Um, and, and so on. And again, we know brown post tissue has something to do with the importance of keeping weight off our bodies. And the next step I wanted to talk about is coffee. We know coffee has a lot of benefits with the all its polyphenols uh, and has a lot of neuroprotective effects as well. But give, give people about four cups of coffee worth of caffeine and they burn about two extra spoonfuls of fat from an hour of cycling. And this metabolic boost also occurs at rest. So drink two cups of coffee, and over the next few hours, your resting metabolic rate goes up by about 10%. So not only does your metabolic rate increase when you're exercising, but even at rest, your metabolic rate is increasing by just drinking this coffee. And we also tend to eat less when we drink our coffee. And in one study, they found that when overweight individuals were given coffee with about 500 milligrams of caffeine for breakfast, they didn't eat more than more throughout the day, and they actually ate less, about 550 calories less. So your metabolism is increasing, and you're eating less as well, just from a nice cup of coffee in the morning. So drink your coffee. Um, I personally love coffee, and I drink it almost every day, and it has a lot of these benefits besides uh, are the neuroprotective effect, the polyphenols, it has this metabolism benefit as well. Now moving on to the next session section is habit formation. He has a nice quote here that states, it's been said that most of the time, what we do is what we do most of the time. Many of our eating habits are indeed just that, habitual. And the busier we are, the more distracted we are, the more likely we are to fall back on our habits and what habits are are defined as learned behavioral responses to situational cues so there are basically two parts of habits there are the cues and the actions and you may have heard this myth that to take to form a habit it takes about 21 days and he has this interesting passage here that that 21 day advice or the 21-day length, is actually a myth. And he puts here that 21 days, that's a myth that evidently originated from anecdotal evidence of how long it takes a plastic surgery patient to psychologically adjust to their new appearance. When it was actually put to the test, the average time to reach automaticity was 66 days. So none of this 21 days, that was um, for something else. That was for how long it took a plastic surgery patient to become adjusted to their appearance. It actually took 66 days. Now, the magic of ha- habits lies in their persistence, persistence, even after losing conscious motivation or interest. There's something that just becomes second nature, something we kind of fall back on, and you really don't have to worry about them anymore. So, why is habits important? Well, if you have healthy habits, you, this is, can always be something you can fall back on and something you can make part of your life and we know when it comes to diet when it comes to exercise and when it comes to a healthy lifestyle we, w- we always want to have good habits for that because we always tend to fall back on that and there are really two ways to break a habit you can either change the cue or change the action remember there are two parts to these habits the cue and the action now the most straightforward approach is to try to just avoid the situational triggers now, what does this mean? Do not put yourself in situations where you're going to reach for junk food or, or take a certain route that has uh, you, you know, your favorite donut shop. What I'm trying to say is avoid the food, avoid whatever sugar in the first place. And recovering alcoholics and drug addicts know all too well the power of social or, or environmental cues to prompt cravings and relapses. And again, just a a personal opinion. Don't put food in your house that you know is junk food because we know when we get tired, when we're stressed, we tend to reach for this food. So if you don't have it in your house in the first place, well, you just can't enjoy that food because you don't have it. And uh, that's the first way to break a habit is just block its activation. Now, another way is to block its execution. So let's say you do have uh, let's say a pint of ice cream in your in your house one thing you can do is make it harder for you to eat that to get the actual execution done and he uses the example of eating with a non-dominant hand and in doing so this brings their eating under their personal control so if if you do have this junk food in your house maybe eat it with the opposite hand but it's best honestly to just Avoid it in the first place. Changing the cue. Avoid it in the first place. Now, I just talked about changing the cue. And next I want to talk about uh, changing this action. And he demonstrates changing actions by this saying of implementation intentions. Now, when researchers interviewed maintainers of significant weight loss, action planning to develop healthy habits arose as a consistent theme. The successful losers of weight often decided in advance what they were going to eat, when and where. Many consciously planned their meals for the day or week, often getting into the habit of eating similar meals for breakfast and lunch every day. They meal prepped and kept healthy snacks like carrots and fruits in plain sight. What what am I trying to say here is that we need to plan our meals. Plan when you're going to eat, where you're going to eat, and what you're going to eat before you do it and when you do this uh, this is again implementation intentions instead of coming home and you're tired and you're, you you just tend to reach for the first thing if you have a meal already planned well you're more likely to eat that meal now moving on so I finished habit formation now I'm going to move on to another passage called avoiding a snowball's chance now I'm going to read this passage here. Imagine enrolling dieters in a study to investigate the effects of prior taste on subsequent taste perception by having them taste test different flavors of ice cream after drinking a milkshake. Now, half were told the preloaded milkshake were very high in calorie, and the other half were told it was a very low calorie, though in reality, all shakes were identical. All the subjects were instructed to taste and rate three bowls of ice cream, eating as much as or little as they wanted to and feeling free to finish them all off if they so wished. Now, what do you think happened? So again, let me summarize. Two groups were told to drink a shake. One was told that it had higher calories. Another group told it has lower calories. They tried the ice cream. What did they find out? Those who had the quote-unquote higher calorie shake actually ate more of the ice cream. They were told... Those told that were drinking the higher calorie shake went on to eat 43% more ice cream than those who had drank what they thought was the low calorie shake. So this is sort of the phenomenon where it's kind of like, it's too late now, so I might as well enjoy myself. And this is a psychological literature term called the what the hell effect. Now, what the hell effect is something you've probably experienced where, let's say you have a cheat meal one day And then a few hours later, you're like, oh, I already have my cheat meal. I'm just going to continue eating junk food for this day and start the next day. This is what what the hell effect is. You eat a bad meal and it kind of snowballs into another meal and another meal. And you eventually eat the whole day of junk food. Now, people seem to be better able to deal with coming up short on positive goals than negative ones. And one way to deal with the what-the-hell effect is to choose acquisitional rather than inhibitional goals. So framing your sub-goals as, th- as things you want to accomplish rather than avoid can help you escape the fatalistic black-and-white thinking that can subvert your long-term goals. Now, again, that's sort of a one way to implement or to get rid of this what-the-hell effect. Um, have these like goals where people again seem to be able to deal with coming up short on these positive goals than the negative ones so reframing your sub goals as something you want to accomplish rather than avoid can help you escape this you know black and white thinking so that's one way be acquisitional rather than inhibitional in your goals now finally or almost finally i wanted to discuss hydration just the importance of water how important water can be in your diet. About a dozen studies have published on the matter, and overall there does appear to be a weight-reducing benefit to increased water consumption. Now, there must be some co-founders in these experiments, and one of the most obvious, obvious might be those who drink more water tend to drink less soda. And the primary reason that the CDC and Prevention U.S. Department of Agriculture American Medical Association, American Diabetes Association, American Heart Association, and the American Academy of Pediatrics all recommend drinking water for weight management is a replacement for sugary beverages. So you drink more water, you drink less soda. This is one of the confounders of why drinking water may help you lose weight. But even if you take the consumption of calorie-containing beverages into account, Water consumption is still associated with better weight control, so there has to be something else going on. Well, what's another confounding factor? How about exercise? This is an obvious confounding candidate. Those who exercise more just tend to drink more water. However, a study of dieting overweight women that took both soda intake and exercise habit into account still found a benefit associated with increased water consumption and over a year those who drink at least a liter of water a day lost about 5 more pounds on average than those who didn't okay what's another confounding factor besides uh switching uh soda for water or on a confounding factor of exercise how about veggies Well, people who tend to drink more water also tend to eat more fruits and vegetables like and as and also greens and beans and whole whole grains um, this is another confounder. Now, to control all dietary factors, there was a massive Harvard cohort study that followed the diets and health of more than 100,000 doctors and nurses for the decade. They were able to control in this study for beverages and lifestyle factors like exercise, smoking, sleeping, and TV watching, uh, and as, as well as other confounding factors. And they were the first to show the study was the first to show that increasing water intake, per se, was independently significantly associated with less weight gain over the long term. Again, increased water intake, per se, was independently and significantly associated with less weight gain over the long term. Now, if it's not, if it's not these confounding factors, then what is, what is exactly the mechanism of H2O? Now, the way the body responds to high water intake is very similar to how it responds to acute fasting. It actually switches towards a fat as a fuel source while trying to spare the muscle. Also, there are mechanisms by which our day-to-day hydration status can affect our metabolism. Now, when we get dehydrated, our blood volume actually shrinks. And this is sort of going into a little bit of physiology, but I'll explain explain it in basic terms. When we get dehydrated, when our blood volume shrinks, when our blood pressure decreases, we get activation of this cascade called renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. In short, what this system does is help reabsorb sodium and water when this is a a system that gets activated by our kidneys. And what happens when our blood pressure is low is we get activation of this renin-aldosterone-angiotensin system and we get reabsorption of the sodium in water. This helps increase our blood pressure back to normal. Now, this system is interesting because one of the comp- components of the renin system is angiotensin. And again, angiotensin is this hormone which, again, tells us to reabsorb sodium in water. But when we drip the hormone onto human fat cells in a petri dish, they start piling on more fat. And this might help, might, may help explain why those with higher angiotensin levels in their bloodstream tend to be heavier. The thought is that those who don't drink enough end up with chronically elevated angiotensin levels, which can lead to weight gain. The most convincing evidence comes from genetic studies showing that those born predisposed to higher angiotensin levels are significantly more likely to become obese. We can keep our levels down, however, in the normal range by staying adequately hydrated. So, in short, if none of that made sense, in short, what I'm trying to say is, you drink more water, you you get less angiotensin, you don't gain as much weight. That's what I'm trying to explain in this past minute or so. Drink more water, less angiotensin, less weight gain. So that is the importance of staying hydrated and drinking water. Now, the very last section, which I'll be kind of quick, is the inflammation quenchers. And in this next few moments, I will be discussing ways to reduce inflammation as well as weight loss. And the single most anti-inflammatory food is fiber. And where can we get fiber? Whole grains, beans, vegetables, and fruits. All these vegan stuff. And we know the most pro-inflammatory food component is saturated fat. And on a compliment, com- complementary plant-based diet, this can help drop our C-reactive protein, which is a marker for inflammation, by about 30 to 40 percent within just a few weeks in both adults and children. Now there was a study done in 2018 where researchers at the University of Nebraska they published a paper which pitted whole grains against fruits and vegetables to see which one had better anti-inflammatory properties, and which group won? both one. So both groups experience anti-inflammatory benefits, but in distinct ways and affecting different markers of inflammation. So this sort of implies that whole grains, fruits, and veggies lower inflammation through different mechanisms, suggesting that we can consume these together to have a synergistic effect. Again, fiber is the most anti-inflammatory food. Saturated fat is the most inflammatory food. Now specifically, has there been any plants shown to be really potent. One of the ones he mentions here is goji berries. So goji berries have at least four times the antioxidant activity compared to other dried fruits like raisins or dried cranberries that you might be able to sprinkle on your oatmeal or just add to your trail mix. There was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that has shown uh, many anti-inflammatory effects while otherwise potentially improving immune function and it works for weight loss as well. So what happened was Brazilian researchers split people into two groups. Both were given identical instructions to follow a healthier diet, but one group was also given 14 grams of dried goji berries a day, which is about two tablespoons. Forty-five days later, the goji group appeared to cut two and a half inches off their waist compared to the no change in the control group. So we are cutting waste and we're dropping LDL and we're we're losing weight and reducing inflammation with goji berries. This is the importance of having goji berries. Now, finally, the last anti-inflammatory molecule I wanna discuss are tomatoes. So tomatoes are America's, one of the most popular vegetables in America and give people about a quart, quarter cup of day of tomato paste and get an improvement in artery function within 15 days, which is an effect attributed to both anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects. And women who were asked to eat a ripe tomato before lunch every day for a a month dropped two pounds with improvements in blood sugar, cholesterol, and triglycerides. So there are some ways to reduce inflammation and reduce your body weight by eating things like fiber, which again are found in whole grains, beans, veggies, and fruits, and specifically having goji berries and tomatoes. So that wraps it up uh, for this podcast. I hope you learned some stuff about thylakoids, brown adipose tissue, hibiscus tea, uh, ways to reduce inflammation, and the importance of drinking water. Uh, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, make sure to tune in next week for another episode of Weight Loss Boosters, um, some more stuff you can implement into your life to help you lose weight. Again, I'll leave my Instagram in the episode description. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to please leave a review. Thank you for listening and tune in next week.